Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Josiah DeRose, and um, I'm privileged to be able to continue um, the series that we've been doing the past two Sundays. It's the Reach series, where we're talking about God's heart to reach the next generation. And I do want to apologize in advance. On, on Thursday, as I was with my youth, uh, we were playing a bunch of games and everything. I ended up losing my voice on Thursday. So I'm still in, in recovery mode. Uh, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm like a, a, a pony with a sore throat. I'm a little horse. <laughs> I'm not even a dad yet, but I, I'm, I'm loving the dad jokes. And I, I like embarrassing my wife. I know, look around for the person with the red face, and that's my wife right now. <laughs> but we're talking about God's heart for this next generation. And, and we're really asking two basic questions. We're asking, why are millennials leaving the church? And then secondly, how do we reach and retain the young adult generation? And to be completely honest, as I was preparing for this, this has been one of the hardest um, teachings that I've had to prepare for. And one of the reasons is because there's so much content out there and so much opinion out there as to why specifically the millennial generation is walking away from the church and, and what we can do to bring them back. So... To start off, I wanted to just kind of give us all a broad overview of some of the thoughts and some of the statistics relating to millennials. Listen to this. This is um, an article that I read. They were uh, quoting some statistics from Pew Research. says 71% of millennials are at least fairly certain they believe in God. That doesn't seem so bad. 71%. 67% of millennials rank religion as at least somewhat important in their lives. So not, not bad so far, but then you get to this third statistic. It says, but only 28% attend church at least once a week. So this article that was looking at these statistics, it, it came to this conclusion. It said, when most people share a belief in God, but only 28% of them attend a church, it's clear that the issue exists within the church. So I'm, I'm just giving some, some thoughts as to why different people or different churches or different leaders think that the millennial generation is leaving. So that was one of them. Here's another one. It says, statistic number one, church leadership is getting older. From 1992 to 2017, the average age of a Protestant pastor increased from 44 to 54. So as of 2017, the average age of a Protestant pastor in America is 54 years old. Now, you might be like, oh, well, big deal. Why does that matter? They say statistic number two, communities are getting younger. One in three people in the workplace are millennials. So the communities we're trying to reach are getting younger, and church leadership is getting older. And so the question that this person was raising in his article was, why aren't we investing in and raising up young leaders? So that was a, another kind of thought about this. And it's tricky it, the, the tricky thing about statistics is you can't just look at one category of statistics uh, you, and, and then make a conclusion from there. There's so many things that play a role um, in, in, in evaluating and interpreting a statistic. Here, here's another one, Pew Research. It says, the share of U.S. children living with an unmarried parent has more than doubled since 1968, jumping from 13% to 32% in 2017. So when you're walking around the streets and, and you see kids, one in every three kids as of 2017 are living with an unmarried parent. 
And that unmarried parent, it could be single mothers, it can be single fathers, it could be um, cohabiting parents that just aren't married. Some, I've heard some people call the millennial generation the fatherless generation. And, and, the, and kind of equating the, the rise of, of fatherlessness with the rise of people leaving the church. So there's, there's all sorts of angles that people come at this with. Um, and then last week, if you were here uh, for Pastor Nick Godshall's teaching, he talked about how 66% of young adults drop out of church for a year or more. 66% of, of young adults, of, of millennials, drop out of church for a year or more. But he said underneath this percentage is another percentage. Underneath this 66% of young adults that are leaving is the, this percentage that says 11% of them were on, were only 11% were given a solid faith to begin with. So he was kind of raising the idea that 11% of the people that are leaving, most of them didn't even have a solid foundation to begin with. And so from there, he started talking about the importance of families and, and the family life. Finally, I thought I would close you know, this introductory part with 10 things, and this is from articles, like I, I'm serious, like I was listening to podcasts, I was reading different articles on why millennials are, are leaving the church, and this was a list of, that I kind of put together of, of all the articles I read, 10 things that churches need to do better according to these articles. Number one was better discipleship. We need to be discipling people. Number two was let more millennials lead in our churches. So it kind of goes back to that one article of the, of the guy that's talking about how our church leadership is, is just, it's getting older. Number three was be more authentic and real. How many of you have heard that before? Right? You just want authenticity. You know, it's like that saying that says, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Number four was mentor them. Don't preach at them. This generation doesn't want to just be told, they want to be shown. They, they want to be mentored. Number five, show them that they're valued and that their voice is heard. You know, don't put, don't put them down. Don't say, you know, you, you don't have any life experience yet. You don't know what you're talking about. Listen to them. Number six, foster environments of community and collaboration. This was a big one that I, I kept seeing coming up is, is that millennials, they, they want community. They want collaboration. They want a, a place where they feel like they can fit in. Number seven, be willing to embrace change. That's a scary word, isn't it? Change. And of course, we're not talking about changing our beliefs or our, our core doctrines, but maybe change could mean how we do church, how we reach out into the community. There's all sorts of different things. Maybe our methods might change, but are we willing to change? Number eight was live out what we say we believe. How many of you have ever been told by someone they don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites? <laughs> right? I, I worked with this gentleman. He was telling me a story one time of a, of a guy that he, was, he invited to church. And the, and the guy looked at him and told him, I don't want to go to church. He said, the church is full of hypocrites. And he said, well, you'll fit right in. <laughs> the guy didn't come to church. <laughs> but live what we say we believe. Number nine, be culturally relevant. Make use of, of technology and social media. You know, the church, I've heard it accused so many times of being stuck in the previous century. The rest of the world has moved on and the, and, and the church is stuck in the previous century. 
So be relevant. And then number 10, it was embrace more of a relational style of leadership. So I say all this just to give you an idea of all the moving parts and, and all the thoughts and all the opinions as to why this generation seems to be leaving the church and, and what churches can do to better attract and, and to keep millennials. Uh, but now that I've given us this broad overview, I want to narrow down to what I think are the two most important issues. And this is my opinion. Right? You don't have to agree with it necessarily. And, and really, whether or not these are the two most important issues or not is irrelevant. These are important issues that I'm going to talk about. And, and for, for myself, I feel like these are, are some of the, the, these are the two most important issues facing millennials in this generation. And they are going to closely mimic what Pastor Nick Godshaw talked about last week. I thought this was kind of cool because... You know, Pastor Nick and I didn't plan this. We didn't sit in his office and talk about how we're going to compare our notes of what we're going to talk about and then go from there. Like, both of us came up with, with some thoughts on reaching the millennial generation, and, and it happened to line up very closely with what I'm going to talk about. Uh, so let me give you two things uh, that we can do, that we need to do in, in reaching the millennial generation. And for the first one, I want you to turn to Judges chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your heart is for this generation. Lord, I thank you for Destiny's testimony of how you've come and, and you changed her life. God, I'm praying for more of those kinds of testimonies. God, you love this generation. You're not done with it. There's no one that's too far gone. There's no situation that's too hard that you can't reach. God, I'm praying that, that if there are young people in this place that are just questioning their walk with God right now, Lord, I pray that something would, would spark in their hearts tonight, that your Holy Spirit would, would do something inside of them. Lord, we can talk about the things that we need to do as a church to reach this next generation, but at the end of the day, if your Spirit is not drawing people in, if your, spirit, or your Holy Spirit is not delivering people from the strongholds and the bondages, God, we can talk all we want and we're never going to get anything done. God, so we're, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to move in this place and, and to move in our generation. God, but at the same time, we don't want to get lazy. We want to take these things seriously, and, and we do pray for wisdom. I pray that you'll be with me now as, as I, I talk about what you've put on my heart, that you would order my thoughts. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Judges chapter 1. So before we get into our text, I just want to put a little bit of context to what we're about to read. Judges 1, it opens up with this. It says, after the death of Joshua. So Judges, it's a continuation of the book of Joshua, of everything that took place in Joshua, the, the book that was previous. So it's, it's important to understand what Joshua was about. What, what was the book of Joshua about before we can jump into the context of Judges? And the theme of Joshua is basically part two of God's redemptive work in the Old Testament. So if you go back even further before Joshua, part one of this redemptive work is found in the story of Moses and, and him leading the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. You know, you know the story, right? You have, you have the, the children of Israel. They've been in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians for over 400 years. And they have this promise that one day they're going to inherit their own land. God's going to give them this promised land. And they're just waiting for a savior to come. 
right? And then one day God raises up Moses and he sends Moses with this message to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go. So, so God, he, he sends 10 different plagues, each one completely humiliating different gods in the Egyptian culture. And he miraculously and powerfully draws out the children of Israel out of Egypt and completely delivers them. Not only delivers them, but he, he wipes out the Egyptian army in the sea in the process. And so part one, it's, it's this picture of complete salvation and, and, and restoration. And then in Joshua, we get to part two where God's redemptive work is, is about to lead his people into this promised land, into the land that he's promised them. And so Joshua, it, it, it's all about the nation of Israel fighting for victory over their enemies and driving out the wicked nations so that they can inherit the land that God has promised them. You still with me? So, so Joshua, they're driving out these nations and they're inheriting the promised land. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Judges. So Judges 1 verse 1, it says this. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up, up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So once again, it's this continuation of, the, of them getting ready to, to inherit the promised land and to continue this, this conquest. And then if you skip down to verse 28, you know, things seem like they're going pretty good. And all of a sudden in, in verse 28, chapter one, verse 28, things start to take a turn for the worse. And listen to what happens. It says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. In other words, they failed to complete their conquest. And the rest of this chapter, it gives details as to their repeated failures to drive out the enemies in the land that they're supposed to inherit. And the thing is, is they were never supposed to cohabit with the Canaanites. God said that you're supposed to drive them out, and this is your promised land. And what Israel did instead is they, it says when they were strong. So they, God was, was working in them. They were inheriting the promised land. When they were at a place of strength is when they decided to put the Canaanites to forced labor. Hey, you know, might as well put them to good use, right? And, and as a result of that, in chapter two of Judges, God tells the nation of Israel that the Canaanites are gonna be a thorn in your, in your flesh and their gods are gonna become a snare to you. Because you've done this thing, you've disobeyed. And so that's where we find ourselves as we go into our main text in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. If, you, if you'll just turn the page, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. This little section here, it's a flashback of everything that I've just kind of summed up. It, it's summing up everything that took place in Joshua up in, and in Judges up to this point. And it says this, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gash. And listen closely to this part. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work 
he had done for Israel. Continue reading in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These are the gods of, of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. <laughs> All of a sudden, it just switches on us. Right? You have this miraculous deliverance that, that you read about in Exodus. And, and Joshua talks about this conquest of taking the promised land. And all of a sudden it's talking about an entire generation doesn't even know God or the works that he had done in Israel. And here's the question I want to ask you. Who's responsible for what happened in verse 10? You know, at first when you, when you read this, you think, what in the world is wrong with this generation? Like, what was their problem? How could they just forsake God like that? How could they just go and start worshiping and bowing down to other gods? But let me ask a couple other questions. And yeah, I think you're going to see where I'm going with this. Is why didn't they know the Lord? Why didn't they know of the works he had done? You know, didn't their parents tell them? Didn't, didn't, their generation talk about what God had done in the testimonies of God? Why did they start worshiping other gods? Or better yet, why were there other gods in the land that weren't supposed to be there in the first place? Now I can see the elders of that day sitting around a, a, a big table and saying, we need to figure out why our generation is leaving God. I'm sure they probably... Blame the culture. It's, it's these Canaanites. They're to blame. They're the ones drawing the hearts of, of, of our children away. They blame the school system. They blamed the news media for twisting everybody's minds. Right? But because we know the context of the story, we realize that the drift from God didn't start with the generation that left God. It started the generation before you understand that? The drift started the generation before. Remember in Judges 128, where it said instead of driving out the Canaanites, they put them to forced labor? So that takes place, and then all of a sudden, a couple generations later, a whole generation has forgot God and started serving idols. Now, I'm not saying that all the responsibility lies on previous generations. The generation that, that left God and worshipped other idols, they're responsible for their actions. Okay, but here's what this story tells us. And I want to especially relate this to millennials who grew up in the church and then left. In this story, you have a little complacency or a seemingly small disobedience. Think of if you're that generation of, of the children of Israel who instead of driving out the Canaanites, you put them to forced labor. It's not that big of a deal. Like, we're strong. We're inheriting these lands. We've conquered the people. Like, we're, it's not like we're slaves to them. We've conquered them. They're serving us. What's the big deal? Like, we'll put them to forced labor. A small compromise, a small disobedience, a seemingly small disobedience. And here's the thing. Our little complacencies as a church, our little complacencies as fathers and mothers, our little complacencies 
as husbands and wives, it's like interest. It compounds and compounds until an entire generation becomes bankrupt. Our little complacencies. So if we're going to be effectively reaching the next generation, we need to be thinking two generations ahead. Because otherwise, we're just trying to fix the immediate problem. We need to be thinking two generations ahead. So, so what's my point in all this? This is what I really believe when it comes to reaching the, the, gener- the next generation is it has to start in the family. It has to start in the family. If you have strong families, you are going to have a strong church. If you have strong families, you're going to have a strong church. We need godly parents being intentional with raising godly kids. And I want to throw this out to you. It's not the church's job to raise your kids. Amen? You know, there was a a question last week uh, during the live Q&A where someone asked, they texted and they asked, you know, if... If the young people are most at risk, why is there only one, um, one service for the youth once a month? Now, I understand th- those services, are not, those are important, especially maybe for those who didn't grow up in a Christian family. But adding three hours a month of reaching young people is not going to change this generation. Like, it has to start in the family. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put down whoever's sending that text. Like, you're right, it is important. I'm just saying that we have to realize that if there's going to be change, it has to start in the family. Amen? Now, here's what I believe the local church can be doing better in our day. I think that we need to invest more in parents. You know, it's really common to have, you know, marriage classes or a youth program or a children's program. I haven't seen a a lot of intentionality, and I'm not talking about any church specific. I'm just talking about overall. I haven't seen a lot of intentionality of helping parents. Like parenting is hard. I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not speaking from experience, but I was a kid, so I've been on that side of parenting anyways. But I think that we could be more purposeful in helping moms and dads navigate and parent in a biblical way. Because it's, it's so important. You know, our goal is not to be godly parents. <laughs> I, was read, I was excited for that point because it also got really quiet. What? Our goal is not to be godly parents? No, no. We've only fulfilled half our responsibility if, we, if we're godly parents. Our goal is to be godly parents who raise godly parents. Because you're not just being godly in your household, but you're teaching your kid to also raise a godly generation. That means that we're continually growing in our understanding of the word so that when our kids have questions, we're not just saying, well, you just got to have faith. That's not a good answer. Maybe in some context it might be a good answer, but when, when kids have questions, when youth have, have questions, it's not a good answer just to always say, you just gotta believe. Like, we, let's take responsibility and search out the word for ourselves. That doesn't mean we're gonna have answers to every question, but it means that, that we're doing our due diligence to study it out. Study the Bible with your kids. You know, part of my testimony, I, I shared it a few years ago here, is I grew up in a Christian family, I'm, I'm 30 years old now, even though I look like I'm 19. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And I got saved at four years old. And I've been a Christian ever since. That's been my testimony, that God has kept me. And one of the things that I I think was foundational in that is that every morning at seven o'clock, my dad would wake our family up. I have three siblings, there's four of us. We'd get dragged out of our warm bed in Iowa, so it was freezing cold during the winter, and we did family devotions every morning at seven o'clock. So we're tired, we're we're groggy. And then he made us find application too. We didn't just read it. You say, what's your application now? We have to go around the room. Say what the application was to us. To be honest, I hated it. <laughs> I, was, I didn't like it. I mean, it was, it was boring. And I'm sure my dad at times, my dad and mom at times, probably it felt like, man, this doesn't seem like this is doing any good. But do you know what it instilled in me? Maybe even though I didn't realize it at the time, is that my parents take the word of God seriously. That they believe in this thing. And that had an impact on me. That gave me a desire on my own when I got into my teenage years. When I graduated high school to stay in the word myself. Because my parents modeled that for me. So study the Bible with your kids. Pray with them. Ask your, your kids questions about their faith. And ask them regularly. I think a lot of times we ask, it's, it's this one and done question. There's certain questions in our culture we need to constantly be addressing with our kids. Conversations we need to be having on a regular basis. We need to make sure that we're engaging with the world that our kids are facing. and The things that they're facing at school, the things that they're facing at work. Make sure that your kids know that your family is a priority. Priority above your job. If you're in ministry, your, fi- your, your family's a priority even over your ministry. Be a model of Christ in the home and not just at the church. You know how, how you you know the stories of you're cussing your kids out on the way to church and then you get to church and you're like, praise God. And your kids are like, what in the world happened? Right? Be a model of Christ in the home, not just in the church. Stay regular in church. You know, if, if, if we're not regular in church, if, if we're just showing up once a month or so, you know what we're telling our kids? Church isn't that important. Think about what, what we're communicating. And I'm, I keep saying our kids as if I had some. I'm just speaking in general terms. Serve the community with your kids. Get involved in, in projects and, and reaching out into the community with your kids. Because what happens in this generation affects the next generation. So I'm going to second what Pastor Nick said last week and say that we need to make a huge investment in our family, in our marriages, in our parenting. We need to make a huge investment in our family. And I believe that this is the most important issue concerning generations leaving the church. Now, before moving on to my next point, I do want to say a couple things. Firstly, I hate not really bringing so many application points, you know, because it's, it's not very helpful to just be like, well, everyone, you need to be more intentional with your parenting and not really give you anything, right? But, but this teaching today, it's more of a conversation starter rather than a how-to. And to be honest, I'm not qualified for the how-to as of yet, but there's a lot of great resources out there to help parents. 
There's, they're in the form of books and podcasts and radio programs. There's, there's a ton of stuff that's out there and, and readily available. So please take advantage of that kind of stuff. And then secondly, I, I don't want to give the impression you know, that I've, like I said, I've got this figured out and I'm lecturing people how to parent even though I don't have kids of my own. I, I've only been married for three months, so obviously I, I have no experience, very little experience in marriage or parenting. Now my wife, on the other hand, would probably say, say she's been learning to parent the last three months, but that's besides the point. But I, I understand parenting, it's extremely difficult. It's trying at times. And, and I also don't want maybe parents in this room who are dealing with prodigal kids to leave here discouraged thinking, well, everything's my fault. That's what he was telling me. Everything's my fault. No, no, that, That's not what I'm, I'm trying to communicate. Listen, we can be the best parents possible. But at the end of the day, our kids have to make their own choices. Our kids have free will. But if you, if, if you do have you know, a generation or kids that have left God. Listen, God can restore. Stay on your knees. If you've made mistakes in your past, don't stay there. Look what you can do in the present. Your mistakes aren't big enough to derail God's plan for this generation. Amen? So let's invest in our families. It starts in the family and then in the church. Amen? Amen? Amen. So now I want to get to my second point, the church. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. As I was preparing for this message, I was listening to a, a podcast, and the podcast was, the subject was specifically on millennials leaving the church and there was a guy that was studying the issue he pointed out some things that I thought was interesting um, he, he would go around and he would evaluate churches that were doing great with millennials so churches that that had a lot of millennials coming in they were reaching that generation specifically and, and they were retaining them and here's what he found he found that the churches were very diverse in nature and here's why that's important it's because I think that sometimes we have a stereotype of what kind of church we need to be if we want to reach the millennial generation, right? You think it has to be those strobe lights and, and worship is more of a concert than anything else. There's, there's fog machines, right? And as soon as that gets done, the, the cool pastor with skinny jeans just kind of struts up on stage, <laughs> just his jean jacket, his oversized glasses, tells a joke to open the, the, the sermon, Right, and they, they have their, their world-class coffee station in the lobby. Everything's tech, everything's digital. That's, that's kind of the, the image we get when we think of churches that are doing well with the millennial generation. But that's not what he found. He found, yes, there are some churches like that that are doing well, but he also found that some churches were very traditional. The worship was simple, the building wasn't modern, it was, it was traditional, and they were doing well with millennials as well. So then from there, I went on to read another article from this leader named Kerry Newhoff. And he asked millennials what was important to them when it came to what the church was doing. What was, it, what was important to millennials when it came to what the church was doing? 
And this is, this is what they said. They said that some of them thought that having a shorter 20-minute sermon was the way to go. You know, our, our attention spans are limited today. There's so many different things vying for attention. So you give us a 20-minute sermon that's to the point, that's powerful, and then we move on from there. But then other of them were like, no, I want like a, a full-length, 40-minute, God-inspired, TSC-type sermon, right? <laughs> with, with the meat and, and, and the theological punch, that's the kind of sermon I want. And then you had some people that, that wanted a little bit longer worship, and, and they enjoyed the, the kind of atmosphere that was set with different lights and, and the ambiance and things like that. That's kind of worship culture that they like to get into. And, but then other millennials were like, no, I, I like the, the traditional style. I, I still like hymns. I, I like simple worship. So there was, in other words, there was no agreement on something specific that the church was doing. But they all agreed on this. They all agreed on what they valued. Things like integrity, transparency, things like honesty and truth. And this is what Kerry Newhoff concluded. He said, maybe the question we need to ask isn't what do we need to do so much as who do we need to be? Who do we need to be as a church? When I, when, when I read that, it reminded me of this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So to close, what I want to do is I want to read to you Romans chapters 12 and 13. I usually don't read you know, a ton of scripture like full chapters very often. But I feel like the Bible gives us a perfect example in these chapters of what the church is supposed to be. And for me to do anything else but just to read what it says would be, would be to, to water it down. Because I feel like God has given us a clear example in Scripture of what, this church is, what the, our church is supposed to look like. The church in, uh, of all generations. And I challenge you, like, I want to challenge you, after we read this, I want to challenge you to go home tonight, find a quiet place, and reread these chapters, Romans chapter 12 and 13, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where we can allow him to be the Christian or be the church that he has called us to be. Because we're all a work in progress, amen? Like we all have different things that we're dealing with. But I challenge you to, to, to go home tonight and just slowly read these, these chapters again. Because these, these are powerful. And this is what the word of God says. I'm telling you, if, if we live this lifestyle, it's so attractive. I don't care what generation you're talking about. If we, when we live this out, when, when we are who God has called us to be as a church, it's so attractive. So I'm going to read this for us and then I'm going to close in prayer. Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13, skip down to verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, and I, I thank you that with as high as a bar that you set in Romans 12 and 13, your Holy Spirit gives us the power and the capability to walk it out. God, I, I pray that you fill every heart here with an incredible love for our neighbors, with an incredible love for people who aren't like us, 
God, with an incredible love for our communities. God, that when they see us walking in this kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle that honors God and that loves people, God, that it would stir them and that it would draw them into this church. God, I do lift up this millennial generation that we've been talking about. God, you love them. You died for them. God, and I'm praying in the name of Jesus that you would use your church to draw them in once again. God, I thank you for the millennials that are in this church, the young people who are in this church that love you with all their heart, that they're walking with you. God, I pray for strength for them. God, if, if, if things are coming against them, if they're starting to question, if they're starting to doubt, Holy Spirit, I pray that you come into their heart once again and confirm a work that you've started. God, I pray that you be with parents who are watching their kids walk down a destructive path. God, I pray for grace and mercy. God, we're praying for you to reach out with your strong hand and to pull them out of darkness. God, to deliver them. God, we have testimony over and over in your word of what you've done. God, and we're trusting you with, with this generation. Give us wisdom to go for it. Give us the heart to love people like you do. And give us the will from your Holy Spirit to serve you with our hands open, completely surrendered to you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.